This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is the Book Grab Podcast. It's weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. Today is Thursday, June 29th, 2023. I'm Jeff O'Neill here with Rebecca Shinsky on the cusp of the 4th of July. Um, Rebecca has gone to visit saints to cure her maladies, and you can tell by her voice that she's been cured. Yeah, I am not sure that that's exactly the Mm. mythology of the Camino, but I did go on a very long hike. My voice got a little bit better every day, and by the end of it, in true form, I was singing Bruno Mars in the middle of Santiago Square. Well, they do like like Don Quixote before you. People do weird things in Spain when they've been walking around for a while. They start seeing things. It's, they start it's true. they start hallucinating, tilting it's at windmills, true. vibing yeah. to Mars. It's all it's all, mm-hmm. it's all there's nothing new it, under El, Yes, it is it is true. I was uh I have, you know, never been as sweaty in my life as I mm. was, and there was a moment at our like last lunch on the last day when we were like three kilometers from Santiago that the Backstreet Boys "I Want It That Way" came on, sweet, and like at, at you know at the little restaurant we were at, and there was just this whole spontaneous karaoke moment with a bunch of strangers. And I was like, "This is it! It's just a collective hallucination." Yeah, <laughs> I'm right. into it. It was a good time. I'm happy to be back. Why, uh, why, why do it? It's so that you can have experiences like that. So welcome back, uh, yeah. Rebecca. We had um, Kelly and Danica sit in for you ably, but we're so mm-hmm. glad to have you back. And if you want more Rebecca and me, um, check out First Edition coming out tomorrow. Well, by the time you listen to this, it'll be out. Um, the July It Books on First Edition, which we went through the It Books of July. A more competitive month this month. It was actually pretty... Um, Pretty pretty interesting to go through. We go. I select ten finalists, and then I present them to Rebecca, and only one remains as the it book of the month on July fourth. There's there's like one notable release on July fourth, uh, a brave release that you can hear us talk about there. First edition, wherever you get your podcast, link in the show notes there as well. We'll do our first sponsor break and uh, get into the news. I don't remember, Rebecca, if you were still around when I deployed the word spreadges on our listenership. Were you around for this? Yeah, I, Does this ring a bell? I was, because we were looking at the Barnes & Noble best of the year so far thing. Right. Like, what is a spread? What right. terrible idea is this? I don't like this word. It makes me feel uncomfortable. Yes. Sadly, I was present for the introduction of spreadges. Well, we live in a divided nation, but... Few issues have brought us together, like the loathing I have received, not, not for me, that has been conveyed uh-huh. to me for the the word spread. This is validating. Which is a sprayed edge, um, and we got mm-hmm. into some discussion while you were gone over Rebecca Yaros's fourth wing, which is the book-selling phenomenon of this spring, except it can't yes. be anymore because you can't buy it. It went from number one on the BookScan bestsellers list of 44,000. The next week it dropped down to 5,000. And then it dropped down to now we're on the list because there were no, no copies to be had. So you it's missed all of one. this. 
and I asked aloud. I wondered what the secondary market was doing for spreadsheets, right? What what's the um, eBay? <laughs> what are the eBayers doing? Can you bid on spreadsheets? That's a different website. Um, That's not what we're talking about here. Mm -mm. I had a listener email in with a screenshot of Pango Books, which is a a used bookseller. Mm -hmm. And they were going for a new copy with the special sprayed edges, dragons. Who knew that stencil dragons on the edge? (laughs) I mean, come on. Dragons and spreadsheets. Yeah. You could get them for 50 going up to 200 bucks a pop for copies of the fourth wing. Um, and immediately everyone, I feel like, I feel like we always learn the wrong lessons. Now we're going to get, <laughs> we're going to get sprayed edges on crap and yep. be like, well, that's clearly what it is. Just like no. everyone's like, well, we need someone like Bigelis Dickelis. Now I've said spreadges <laughs> and Bigelis Dickelis in one episode. I'm going back to Spain, man. And this is terrible stuff, but it only works once and it was only cause it was constrained. So I'm sure the next issue, the next, um, iteration in Rebecca Yaros's, I don't know. I don't know what the name of the series is. It's about dragons and people doing it. Um, <laughs> is going to have sprayed edges, but there'll be 300,000 copies. And everyone yeah, will rush out yeah. to buy them. And they're going to Beanie Baby bubble themselves to death. The, uh, so you know, be careful. The Barnes there. & Noble category should have been dragons and people doing it. There's plenty books to put in that category. Uh, you know, it seems to work every time. <laughs> every time. Um, so thank you. I don't think I got affirmative consent, but I, I appreciate your email okay. of writing in, uh, <laughs> listener there. That's my lone follow-up, except to say that some of the stories we're following today, have, are, we're in kind of long-running um, it does look that concerns. Way. So mm-hmm. let's see, everything here, hmm. well, I'm not sure that we're going to really talk about it. The, the one that we haven't, we don't do too much like, what's it like out there for an author stuff? This is mm-hmm. a listener, a reader kind of show, focus show. But there was a piece, um, was it last week? Wow, this is an older piece that I got recommended to me on Pocket. So this is by Heather Demetrios. It was published in 2019. It made oh, its wow, round okay. on Bookish Twitter, which I'm going to sidebar about Bookish Twitter again here in a minute. But I thought <laughs> it was really interesting about the realities of getting in advance and how they get doled out. And it's helpful to remember that most writers basically make nothing, and those that make yes. six figures make something more than nothing, mm-hmm. but it can get out of hand really quickly in terms of how it's broken up and what your fees are, and it's livable. You hear someone say they sold their book for $100,000. That sounds great, but it is tough out there. And if you don't plan, I guess like with anything, a lump sum payment, this is true of many lump sum payments mm-hmm. and people misspend it and don't think about it. If you're not really attuned to how you manage your money before. It's not like you're suddenly going to manage it very well when you get a whole bunch. Um, but I thought the piece was worth passing along, even if it's four years old. I'm not sure if there's any poll quotes or anything for us, Rebecca, but for those of us, especially if you're listening to this show and you're interested in the inner workings of the book world, it's so helpful to remember that essentially most authors are contract freelancers, that's, contract workers. <laughs> that's the thing that's hard to remember about Yeah, this. I think that's exactly the sentence that I was coming to because mm. there's, I mean, there's a lot of good stuff in the piece, especially if you're an aspiring author or you have the dream of maybe I can just live off my art someday. You know, we have talked ad nauseum here in the last 10 years about the fact that most, even successful writers have day jobs because successful is what a $100,000, $250,000 book deal, but that's not going to cover you 
forever. And when you think about the fact that a book takes multiple years to write and then at least another year or so to get published, you're spreading that 100 or 250 or whatever it is across many years and you got to pay your taxes, you got to pay your agent, that you know, you got to pay for your own health insurance at that point. And one of the things that she mentions is this desire that she has for like the publisher, nobody told me this information. Nobody told me yeah. how how any of it works that if my first book doesn't perform very well, my next advance might be lower. Even if my first book does perform well, there's no guarantee that my next advance will be equal to that or higher than that. It's not like getting a performance review and then getting a raise and kind of being able to count on that. And she says it would have been great if my publisher had like put me in touch with a mentor the way that many corporations encourage more seasoned employees to mentor others. And that was what stuck out to me was like, right, but you're not an employee. And that is one of the things that makes the publishing arrangement, I think, challenging, especially for authors learning about how the economics of it work is that you are a contractor. And the publisher's commitment to you is to fulfill the terms of that contract that you signed. They give you the dollars, you give them the book, the book gets published, and that's kind of it. Usually, like a marketing budget is not agreed to in a contract. What they're going to do to support you is often up for grabs. It's moving around depending on how the book is performing or not performing, and what's in the zeitgeist and all those things. And like authors do need this information, but the publisher is not going to be the source of it yeah. um, because they, they don't perceive their responsibilities to be that way. You are not the employee. And I think understanding that from the get-go would be a really helpful first step. Yeah. I remember, don't quote me on any of this, <laughs> but um, the NBA had a real rash of young players yes. coming into the league, I think in the 90s, um, the early 90s to mid-90s. And it was a more decadent time in the world of the NBA. Again, it's still pretty decadent. These are fantastic celebrities that are super fit and have a lot of money. So they do all sorts of stuff and that's fine. Enjoy yourselves out there, be safe and obey the law and all that stuff. But they realized that people were not, they didn't understand how to manage money and what it meant and taxes and all that kind of stuff, which makes sense. You're 18 years old right? right and gosh. suddenly you're getting $10 million a year. If not, you know, it could be more or less, but like a huge chunk and not really reasoning, you know, financial literacy, but also just some just sort of basic, let's take it easy out there and plan and understand this may not last forever and what if you get hurt and all these sorts mm -hmm. of things that go on. And they instituted a, basically a financial literacy course that the NBA rookies um, needed to, to take. And I don't know how much that's helped, but it made a ton of sense, right? And, and the league was interested in the health of its players financially, emotionally, psychologically, uh, PR-wise as well, not for nothing. Right. And I don't know what, if anything, publishing could do. Now, uh, being invested in one player that you pay $10 million is a lot different than one of your many authors that gets $50,000 for a book. So there may be diminishing returns, I don't know. But in absence of that, it's self-education time. And this is one of those self-education mm -hmm. pieces. I agree. Um, and I don't know if agents do some of this. I know I know so little about the actual pre-galley life of a book, generally speaking, that I don't know what's possible here. But And people have a dream of, I got my book deal, and now I'm a writer, and I'm going to be a professional writer. And the truth of it is, it just doesn't happen for most people. Yeah. It, it just, that first, most people don't get the first one, and even fewer get the second one. Mm -hmm. And even fewer still get a second one they can live off of. So it's it can be, I understand how it's dispiriting to think like, I need to plan as if this is it. Yeah. 
is not fun. <laughs> it's not fun. It's not. I get it. You know, it sucks. She, it does. she does have a, a line in there that's something like, you know, I finally came to understand that what we were all doing here was like buying tickets to the lottery or the slot yeah, machine or, or something right. like that. And that I think that's the way to think of it, that if you get a big book deal, you have won the lottery and you should not expect to win the lottery twice or three times or four times or, mm-hmm. you know, like you it that it happens for some people, but it's increasingly like for every book that gets published, it's just harder to get the next one out or to get more, to get more money. I know there are some agents that do this as part of their relationship with clients. Cause I've got author friends that like, this was how they became educated about how the industry functions. I think there are places online that you can get all that information, you know, speaking to the self-education piece of it. There might be a vacuum there where like an agency could create a like first time authors, you know, like, Right. Being an author 101 course and throw all your debut people together and give them mm. some of the basics and a little support. I think that would be a wonderful thing to provide. I don't know of it existing anywhere. And I've definitely not heard of a publisher providing that ca- that kind of education for authors. Like the, the agent is typically the author's advocate, mm-hmm. you know, kind of educator, their guide through, you know, the underworld of publishing. Yeah. Well, and they're, the agent is their agent, but not their accountant. You know, or right. money manager typically, and mm-hmm. you know, athletes have this sort of thing, and, and most people should or have yeah. some kind and of that, backup uh, when it comes to. I financial. think that NBA analogy is interesting because the NBA, as you were saying, is invested in like the public images of these players. Mm-hmm. They have a lot of money riding on it, not looking right. like everybody's a big mess, and <laughs> publishing doesn't have that same relationship to authors reputations often Mm -hmm. the controversy serves to sell more books if there is a controversy if you're just a writer who isn't managing your personal finances super well that's not really newsworthy to anybody or your publisher that it's very much like that's a you problem kind of thing which is is hard uh but i don't know that we i don't know that it's reasonable reasonable to expect like a structural kind of solution to that other than financial professionals exist and yeah. hopefully you take it. And you're an that. adult. I mean, not for nothing. Right. Like you can read and find out like everyone has to deal with taxes and other things like that. Yeah. So it's a good piece and a good reminder, both of the realities of it. And I guess to shout out something else I did recently, I wrote recently for Book Riot's um, deep dive newsletter, making the argument, I think that Penguin Random House should buy Substack was the piece that I wrote. Mm-hmm. Um you know, there's a saved, you saved 2.2 B's on not buying Simon Schuster. You got some money left over to throw at something. And one of the things I was saying there is talking about how publishers have a huge portfolio of authors and books. And it's just a very few of them that pay for the rest, right? Mm-hmm. The, the big hits pay for the rest. Which means on an individual author basis, investing in an email newsletter or social media marketing or financial literacy for any specific author is probably a money-losing endeavor, much Mm -hmm. like publishing their book probably is, frankly. (laughs) Um, But it's the winners. But what that means is you get quite a few authors and quite a few books that, to be perfectly honest, are not germane to the publisher's financial health. Right right or wrong, thinking of that's true. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, about how it's, these it things is true. That, and I think this is one of the outgoes that Dan of that Brown reality. underwrites. Yes. Dan Brown underwrites, you know, the debut novel and the poetry and, and all of yeah. those things. And like, I, I think I've spoken on the show before. I will never forget sitting in a meeting with a publisher one time and like going through the catalog and pointing out a debut that looked interesting and then being like, oh, yeah, I mean, we're not really spending money on that. Don't worry about that one too much. But like, you know, we've got to do something to give the junior editor something to do. Mm-hmm. And that that I think is on the more cynical end of like, that's a more cynical reading of. Uh, how some of these books get published. I think often a publisher sees something like this is a piece of art that we do want to support and put out into the world. It's not going to make us any money and we're doing it anyway. That's the most generous end of the spectrum. But there's a lot in between there where it's all tickets to the lottery. Maybe that one that you thought wasn't going to go anywhere turns out to be like a big word of mouth hit and you're just crossing your fingers and hoping. Um, But that's not the message that new authors want to receive is like, that that's very demoralizing from the start. Your book is going to come out, and your baseline expectation should be that it won't go anywhere. Uh, that's a tough um, hang, but man. that might that be the most hard world to live in. <laughs> but it might be. It is. That's tough. But it yeah. might be the most sane way to enter into it. Expect this mm-hmm. to to not be a thing. And I'm not typically the like have low expectations so that then you can be delighted kind of person. Uh, but I do think with publishing, that's a pretty sane place to come from. Well, at the very least, you can't if you're planning. You're making life choices in life. To decisions, right. you have to realize that you are also a lottery ticket, too. You're a lottery ticket to yourself, mm-hmm. show title, right? If yeah. you are to the publishing industry, then <laughs> right. you certainly should understand what you are to yourself. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it, um, because there's all there's a lot of reasons to write that are non-financial, or it could be many different things, or maybe that's how you want to mm-hmm. spend your time, and you want to be a writer, and you've got to take a shot. And this is like, just like most people that play college or high school basketball are not going to end up playing professional, but they like basketball, so they try. And that's that's great, um, but you know, one of the many reasons, and, and you know, with the writer strike going on, the realities of how these things are put together is real. And we know from our side, it's not easy to to run a business and to be in the content game and the world of books and media. Um, and this is helpful, if not sobering. Um, yeah. And what you don't want when you've just signed a book contract as a debut author for six figures and you're riding high frankly, is to be sobered up. You don't get sobered up at 1045 when someone just pops champagne. That's the last time someone was be like, you know what? Let's have some real talk. It's really time to sit down and spreadsheet this out. Um, but that's kind of what the message is here. It's a, it's a good that's, piece. It's a cautionary tale. It is a good piece. And a reality um, to set in. Um, so this happened a couple weeks ago, and several people emailed about us, but I said, there's no way I could talk about Barack Obama being asked hard <laughs> questions about his end of year list and and do that without me. At the same time, I'd like to announce our six part pop up episode <laughs> close reading this video like it's um, Zapruder uh, yes, film uh-huh. or Vladimir Putin at a die uh, in Moscow responding well, to a coup where we have to parse every word and every hand gesture and every reaction uh-huh, of everyone uh-huh, in the room. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But Rebecca, let me ask you this. A, what was this? And B, did this make you feel more, less, or the same confident that Barack uh, Obama uh, reads and understands the books that he puts on his year-end? 
First of all, Jeff, I'm really glad that you understand the terms of our relationship right. and that you saved this for me. So Hassan Minaj interviews Barack Obama for like about a half an hour. Mm-hmm. And one of the things, one of the first things that he asks, that Minaj asks him is, do you really read all those books? And Obama's like, dude, yes. <laughs> I read them. Put I out, like them. I would say. Put out. <laughs> he is. I think Obama. that he... I think he's a little tired of getting this question, and I get it. Because That's data one point of our one. More... He gets this question a lot, and he's exasperated by it. I'm putting that, I'm entering yes. that re- the record, Your Honor, as exhibit and A. I just have a lot of affection for exasperated Obama, first of all. Yeah. But like one of the more professorial figures in American political history, at least modern American mm-hmm. political history, I never had any doubt that he was reading those books. We still don't know how he gets them. Don't know. <laughs> We're probably never going to know, but I do believe that he is reading them and that if you like had the great good luck of bumping into him somewhere and you were both holding the same book, you could be like, dude, how is, you know, chapter four going? And he would talk with you amiably and knowledgeably about whatever was happening in that book. I believe he reads these. I think Hassan Minaj knows he reads these books. He's like maybe the most put out about the playlists. Doesn't like where that. It's like, yes, I like listen. That. I listen to music. The kids today did not create hip hop. <laughs> And also one of the more like pop culture astute and savvy figures in modern American political history. This has been a part of Obama's public image for as long as he's been in the public eye. So, yeah, I believe he knows these books and likes them. He listens to the songs that are on the playlist. I I honestly was just happy to spend half an hour watching these two guys (laughs) talk to each other. And have Minaj sort of good-naturedly rib him about stuff. It was a real gift. Like, this is my first day back at work after being away for two weeks. And it was a real gift that I got to spend half an hour of my catch-up time this morning being like, I can justify watching this whole thing. I have to do it as homework. Yeah. So, Uh, yeah. It's... We don't know anything new. No, I don't, think, don't know anything but, new. I recommend watching it. The book stuff is at the very top. Like they led that as with the teaser, yeah. which I thought was interesting. I, I, you know, was this for me? Does the, the LLMs know? know? They know what I want. How and they many repl- people are really worried about this? Very strange. Yeah. One point of concern, I, I, and I'm just gonna. I'm just one point of concern. Um, Hassan mm-hmm. asks him directly what the plot of Afterlives by Abdul Razak Gurna was, and Obama does not answer. He, yeah, I think he's not dignifying the question. <laughs> yes, but not dignifying it is also, when someone says, I'm not going to dignify that was an answer, 50% of the time is the answer would be bad, <laughs> right? doesn't mean it's a good question or a noble one, but he yes. does not answer the plot of Afterlives by Abdul Razak Gurna. I have read that book, and I was mm-hmm. waiting. I was like, mm. punch it in his face, throw it right back, say it's a tessellating, <laughs> spiraling portrait of... African colonial warfare and the lives of several people and they get nope it was dude how can you ask me that of course I read this book mm-hmm. that's what someone would say who just got called on the carpet for having not read a book they said I'm just saying that's also what you would say if you have not read I'm, I'm just asking questions that's right I'm just saying I'm just saying that he could have said you know he was a, he, he won the Nobel Prize and I saw this new edition and it's this really intricate spare. I mean, anything. He it could have done one <laughs> Listen, sentence. 
This is our ongoing complaint about the best yes. books of the year list is that they are blurbless. Yeah. I want the blurbs, but I also think we have to acknowledge that if we got the blurbs, it would just give rise to like, who wrote this blurb? Did Obama really write this blurb? But that's why we had him. We had him on the hook. He's right there. <laughs> you know, I think he's also media savvy and he knows how to stay in the news cycle. And if he make, continues the mystery... It's it's a little it's savvy to continue this mystery. It would have been elite move, for the though, four of us in the like, world who cares like about a, this. Just a diamond <laughs> right. sharp just, summary of it's bravura. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he just goes into blurb nonsense, mushy mouth blurb. <laughs> no, no content garbage. I would, my soul would have left my body if he had used the word limb. <laughs> it limbs the the space between. Yeah, or he's like, who cares? Yeah, actually, it's my fourth favorite book by Abdul Razak Gurna. I'll tell you why. The first, right? <laughs> you really got to start with this other one. When the Nobel Committee asked me for ideas, <laughs> I told them you got to go back. You got to yeah. go back, man. So mostly fun, but look, mm-hmm. you still have your doubts. And. If he had Speak given a really yourself. sharp answer, I would. I could have also been like, "Well, he knew that was coming. They fed it to him." Mm-hmm. I can't. You can't get into the mind of another person, Rebecca, um, <laughs> which is you know, good and bad. But I just, I just. This it's is still there. part of the problem of being the guy on the internet who's just asking questions, Jeff. Now you're just stuck. Just stuck. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what. What I want a spontaneous book report on arbitrarily selected titles. <laughs> The phone rings and it's, this is the office of Barack Obama. And yeah. he, he just wants to tell you. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? You're looking at Goodreads, on Barack. Yellowface. You're probably looking at Goodreads because everything goes fine when you look at Goodreads. Just yeah, Barack, Goodreads. he's not caring about, doesn't care about the Goodreads, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Um, and rightly so because um, Roxanne mm-hmm, Gay That's a segue. A Gosh darn it. Something else, right? Um, in the Times wrote a piece about review bombing on Goodreads, um, inspired by, but it's only a single manifestation of a larger phenomenon, which is the tragedy of the commons and Goodreads. I don't know if anyone out there mm-hmm. knows the phrase. Some of you probably do. The tragedy of the commons, if something's used by the commons, the worst actors will come in and destroy it because that's that's going to happen. Um, is this where you want to do your aside about Twitter? <laughs> well, no, not really. Okay. The thing that's so strange about, I mean, so basically what happens for those of you who haven't been on Goodreads in a while, if ever, congratulations to you, I guess, is you can give a book a star rating and say pretty much almost anything about it. And that's it, right? Which is mm-hmm. cool from a, what do users think? You know, I'm trying to figure out if this book is for me, other people, social proof kind of stuff. On the other hand, it can be abused very easily, and it is often by people coming in. This is, you know, Liz Gilbert pulling the snow forest because mm-hmm. Ukrainian activists, it seems like, a well-orchestrated group of some size, could be one person, could be a whole bunch, seem to have created accounts and logged on to Goodreads for the sole and single purpose of shaming and declaiming the wrongness of Liz Gilbert setting a book in Russia at all. Um and this happens. We've talked about this happening, especially with writers with color, especially people of marginalized mm-hmm. voices. The internet trolls come out because this is a soft spot in the system where we would like to be able to talk to each other in sane and interesting and collaborative ways. 
and then someone comes in with a megaphone and they start saying racist stuff. And there's no amount of nuance and subtlety over your white wine that can deal with that because they're just going to drown everybody out. And a well-orchestrated attack can do this. And Goodreads does not seem interested in it. And I I think there's some things they could do to to mitigate it. But on a fundamental level, the idea of the average person can come in and say whatever they want for whatever reason on a pretty influential, quote-unquote, page for this book, in a lot of ways it becomes the second homepage for a book. Probably the Mm -hmm. Amazon page is the most popular destination for any particular book. I would guess the Goodreads page is probably second, or it's in the top five. And you can vandalize it. Yeah. And that's... And I don't see a way around it. I, I, there are some things they could do. You could, you know, you'd have to do a waiting period to log on because a lot of people are logging on for the sole purpose of this. Waiting period, 14 days. There could be um, only allow the reviews to happen after the pub date, right? Well, people want pre-pub and early reviews. Well, maybe you have to be an authorized good. Suddenly there's a bunch of things that doesn't make it common so much anymore. And I don't know that Goodreads right. is invested in that. And I just don't know the efficacy of it. But this is what we've learned from the internet, I guess, Mm-hmm. This is just one more of these kinds of things. And I, I don't know why you're around it, Rebecca. I really don't. It's a, sh- yeah, a cry I, and shame. And it feels like something that's is. cool. And the early days of Goodreads seemed really cool. But I haven't looked at a Goodreads review in five years for stuff like that. Yeah, I agree. Reasons. Yeah, I agree. Um, this was one that like while I was having a random moment in my hotel room on the trip and I was scrolling through the New York Times homepage just right. trying to get a sense of like what was happening out in the world. This was on the homepage, at least of my New York Times app. And so I had emailed myself the link to be like, read this. And then of course this was uh, on the agenda when I came in today. Mm-hmm. And I've been thinking about this and I think it's, this, this feels like the inevitable end of most social platforms yeah. on the Like, this is what happens to social platforms on the internet. It is the tragedy of the commons. There's a Cory Doctorow piece from earlier in the year on, in Wired that's getting, like, renewed life going around my internet, at least about the shitification, as mm-hmm. he calls it, of internet platforms. And that is along similar lines that if it's open for anyone to access it, anyone will access it. And if you don't regulate how they behave, they will also do anything they want. Uh, to serve their own ends that are not necessarily aligned with what the stated mission of the thing is for readers to get together and talk about books. Like, and there, I agree, there are some things that Goodreads could do. It could be like you can only post reviews within uh, 30 days of the book's public, like 30 days before the book's publication date or 60 days or whatever. Like, you can get some, you can still get some early buzz. There's no way to do like a that I know of that they could do like a verified galley situation the way that Amazon does a verified yeah. purchase. And then you can at least know that the person who is reviewing that vacuum cleaner is reviewing it based on their experience because they bought one. But it seems like they're I mean, the, on a very basic level, you could maybe do some AI things of like if there is a review that says I haven't read this book. <laughs> or if the book is not out yet and it's getting zero, like one star reviews that you could apply another level of scrutiny. I think it's Roxanne Gay who says in that this piece for the Times by Alexandra Alter and Elizabeth Harris that Goodreads just doesn't have a financial incentive to no. care about this. No. And I think that is the bottom 
line there. Ultimately, they should care about it because this kind of thing makes Goodreads less useful to the typical Goodreads user who's there in good faith and wants to find out about stuff. Having having reviews bombed for whatever motive or agenda someone is trying to fulfill is not helpful to the typical user who wants to be active there. And if you want your platform to be successful long term, you should care about maintaining that quality of experience. But that is not the way that these social platforms have gone so far <laughs> on mm-hmm. the internet. And it does seem to me to be like, well, here goes one more thing that has been an interesting resource over time, becoming less and less interesting and less and less useful because of it, because people can do these things, can decide, I don't like the concept of this book Therefore, it shouldn't exist. There's an author quoted in this who says they've received one-star reviews and negative reviews on Goodreads for books they haven't even finished writing yet. (laughs) And so maybe there could be something like a a book doesn't get posted on Goodreads. It doesn't get a page until some sort of, you know, proximity to the publication date. It wouldn't stop all of this, but you could do something to regulate it. I think... Goodreads should care because they sell advertising to publishers. And if this becomes less useful to readers, those ads become less useful to publishers in actually selling the product. But that's, I think, a long tail of response that takes like that's a long term consequence that we haven't seen the end of yet. Yeah. And again, the, this, the fundamental like there's sometimes you're like, does the fundamental use of this thing makes sense anymore. Whatever you can do on yeah. it. And the idea of public you know, public comment on a homepage for a book that's that influential. Mm-hmm. But maybe there's a spiraling yeah. factor where if there's Goodreads is less influential, then people are less likely to do this. Because this seems like a very weird... I don't know what the utility of doing this to Liz Gilbert's Snow Forest really is. Like, are the Ukrainian whatever group putting this together is like, you know what, we did it, guys. This really helped. Um, we, we mm-hmm. I just don't know about the it's, efficacy of this. Yeah, I, I think it's that it is the like really only place you can try to take some kind of yeah. public action around right. a book because you could email the publisher, but the publisher is not going to care that people on the internet are mad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Publishers are well practiced at ignoring most of the things that people on the internet get mm-hmm. mad about, and for good reason. Most of the time, you could email the author, and that would be really awful to be on the receiving end of a bunch of horrible emails, and authors definitely have stories about yeah. that. But if you're trying to like assert a little power or feel like you've accomplished something, taking down an author publicly, Goodreads is the way to do it, and having their book canceled is the sign of success. And like, okay, you cannot go win the war in Ukraine or solve the problem of race in America, (laughs) but you now feel that you have accomplished something. I think it is keyboard activism of one of the more toxic varieties and a real distraction from conversations that are worth having. Yeah. And maybe, again, if it were up to me, I think I would do something like you have to have had, you had to have had your, um, profile up for X number of weeks Mm -hmm. before you can do anything. And maybe you have to go through some other verification stuff. And maybe you can't even post reviews if you don't have, I don't know, um, other connections on the network, right? You have to make some connections Mm -hmm. with people and there can be upvoting and downvoting and, you know, do some other things. But I think all of that is at the marginal 
This idea of a central place in the inter- on the internet that's become an influential place to talk about authors and books. It's ripe for abuse, and I just don't and think the, it, the machine cannot account for that because there's a human problem, it, it not a technological can, problem underneath it. The only thing that I know that people can decide to do about it, like users of Goodreads and authors and publishers who are on the receiving end of this stuff, is really apply scrutiny to which feedback is worth paying yeah, attention is, to. Right. Like when I was on Twitter, one of the first things you learn to do if you're getting any harassment of any kind is like click on this profile and look. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. when was the profile created? How many people do they follow? How many people follow them? Is this just like somebody who's mad today and today I'm the one that they're mad at? Or does it have the potential? Like, how worried should I be about this stuff that's being pointed at me is really the thing you're trying to figure out. Yeah. Like, is this person going to blow my day up? Are they going to blow my week up? Mm-hmm. I haven't done anything wrong, but are they going to set this whole? Am I going to be at the center of an Internet firestorm? And one of the ways you address that anxiety is look and see like, oh, no, no. This was created three days ago. They follow four people and all the public tweets that they've sent are stuff like this. Okay, I don't care. And that takes like extra time and work. And if you're an author and this is happening to you on Goodreads, all you see is the flood of it and trying to figure out like which of the one star reviews is worth paying attention to and which one is just a form of this harassment because someone is mad about something is more time digging yourself into an environment that you shouldn't have to be in in the first place. And that's the only real advice then would be don't care. Decide you don't care about Goodreads and if enough people decide they don't care about Goodreads, then we lose the incentive for people to try to do this kind of harassment and this kind of activism. My, like, I've been on the internet for a long time side says, well, then they just find another place to do it. (laughs) But there's, there is no other current, like, centralized place like Goodreads where something like this could occur. And, and publishers could do some work to support their authors by calling up and saying, like, I like to use a personal example, years ago when this was happening to me on Twitter, like, you call me up one day and are like, I I see this, we all know what's happening, everything is fine, this really sucks, you're okay, the company has your back, you know, like, what can we do? Mm -hmm. And if there is something like this happening to an author, I do think this is something that their editor or their agent can reach out and say, we see this and we know what it is, and it doesn't impact how we're going to treat your book. Let's focus on, you know, the things we can control. Let's get you in the placements for like the PR that is going to serve you. We are not going to put stock in this stuff that we know doesn't matter. Um, but that's like on the human level, all that can be well, done. Well, that's the question I don't know is how much does a Goodreads um, review bomb situation actually affect the book sales? I don't know the answer to this. I'm not I don't sure know publishing that anyone does. I don't know knows. anyone does because you can't A-B test the universe and every book is different and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. But we just don't know. And But what happens when you don't have a lot of good signal-to-noise ratio is all noise looks like signal. And so you do what you can and say, well, that's 500 one-star reviews. It looks like we have a problem on our hands. We better pull the book. Because you don't, you're not going to get a, an equally strong positive indicator, it's, right? That's like, yeah, we're in trouble here. Something's going on. Yeah, it feels a little bit like an, you know, the emperor has no clothes situation of like, we collectively decided that Goodreads matters. And so we could collectively decide that, like, in the absence of actual data, we could collectively decide that it doesn't matter. 
and how you make that happen is really difficult. Um, and, and as you were saying, sorting in the meantime, sorting out the signal from the noise is challenging. And it just, it's awful to it's be a person bad. on the receiving end of that stuff. Nobody should have to experience that. Like, and there are ways to reach publishers if you want a book to be, you know, unpublished or to have its publication canceled. And we've seen some successful versions of activism yeah. around that. There have been titles that publishers have canceled over the last couple of years. They're few and far between. I think the bar is high and the bar should be pretty high for something like that. Um, we don't have enough time mm-hmm. in this podcast for my thoughts about the Elizabeth Gilbert situation. Right. <laughs> but it's this is just not a great thing. And I, I think it points to a, a you know circling down the drain of, that Goodreads is doing of, of the same kind that happened on Facebook and then happened on Twitter and that we just yeah. see on social platforms. We're going to do Frontless Foyer in a second, but we're going to do our uh, second ad break. Um, did you read anything? What, did you do plain reads? What was on your... You had to carry yeah. crap around with you, so I'm not sure what you did or didn't bring. <laughs> I, yeah, I only read one book and I read On the Flight mm. Over, but everything else was like I was walking and eating and sleeping. Right. <laughs> and that was pretty much it. But I read... Um, this is a perfectly timed new memoir for me uh, called Walking with Sam by Andrew McCarthy, the like 80s Brat Pack author or uh, actor who's become a travel writer of sorts. Uh, this was my first read of his. But 25 years ago, he walked the Camino de Santiago, and a a couple of years ago, he went back and walked it with his 17-year-old son, and the book is a memoir of that. Mm. Um, They did the whole French way, the 500-mile, takes-you-a-month-to-do-it situation. It's really, like, Jeff, this is fathers and sons, man. Mm. (laughs) Like, it's really beautiful. His son is uh, 19 or 20 when they do the walk, and it has just like lovely reflections about the conversations that they had, the kinds of things you talk about when there's nothing to do, but keep walking and your mind is pretty clear because you're not sitting in front of the internet or at your job (laughs) or whatever all day long. And, and his son is going through a breakup. And so his son is sort of talking about the ex and McCarthy is talking about his own feelings and navigating how to parent this person who's becoming an adult. And, um, it was really lovely. I, I had started it before the trip. I don't usually read books about the places I'm going on vacation. It's just like not my typical jam, but it was coming out. It's brand new. It was coming out right around then. And I was like, you know what? Let's see about this. And I loved it. I don't think you need to have any interest in doing the Camino or even know what it is to enjoy this uh, father and son doing this challenging physical thing together in a in like an intimate emotional setting, just out walking together for a month. Um, and I did see a couple sets of fathers and sons on my walk, which mm. um, was just fascinating. Most of the people who do the pilgrimage are women, which is a whole other like sociology thesis I'd like someone to write. <laughs> but we saw several groups of fathers and sons, um, and it was just really, it was really beautiful book. Yeah, what have you been reading? Um, just one to recommend. It's not been a great reading month for me, but I. <laughs> whipped through The Guest by Emma Klein two days ago in one oh. sitting. Um, it is, I guess you'd call it a thriller, psychological thriller. I'm not really sure, but the setup is it's a young woman who, you know, she's in her early 20s, I I think. And it's clear that she's been working as a uh, an escort in, in the big city mm-hmm. and oh, has gotten into a little bit of trouble where some one of her 
I don't think it explicitly said that he's one of her clients, and I'm not going to try not to spoil it enough to enough to tease. She uh, maybe took a few things of his, and that is not great. Ooh. And nope. she doesn't have a support system, no family to know of, no job. Um, she's been stiffing her roommates for rent for a while. And she starts, she gets involved with an older fella who has a beach house. And so she goes, she escapes the city and goes out and lives with him on the beach house for a while. And then that starts to fall apart. And then suddenly she's in this wealthy community by herself with nowhere to go and no phone and no funds and a a malfunctioning phone. And it's pretty cool as a very slim conceit. And you really think all kinds of things about this world, but also how is this going to happen? What's going to go on? A portrait of desperation, I would say. Mm. Um, And there, but for the grace of whatever we go, but also maybe you did some bad stuff too. Um, boy, it was it was electric. It's the kind of beach read that I want. I don't I don't need the the um, Ellen Hildenbrands of the world. I'm not mm-hmm. really looking for that. I'm looking for something that grabs my attention and won't let go. And this Perfect. really did that. So um, if you need a little, if you like a little bit more of an edge to your beach read, but you will still want to turn the pages, uh, the guest by Emma Klein sounds great. Is my pick for you. So okay, go check out first edition. Um, recently on the Patreon, we had a summer giveaway that you can go listen to the books that um, we talked about and then also did a 40th anniversary of Heartburn. We've got some other stuff coming up soon. We're at the middle of the year, and so you know what that means for the middle of the year kind of stuff. So check out the Patreon. Spredges. God, did you really have to say that at the end? <laughs> did you have to? So I, uh, you know, I'm just a little feeling froggy. I think it's it is that is one thing that's eligible for uh, an acceptable use of a one star Goodreads review. If Spreads is in the marketing for it, one star. You're done. That's it. Get out of here. Uh, show notes bookwright.com slash listen. Shoot us an email at podcast at bookwright.com. Rebecca, welcome back and we'll talk to you soon. Okay.